You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Episode 41, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun, informative format where you can learn about what physicians face through expert analysis. Today's expert is Dr. Elena George, who is an ENT in solo practice in Atlanta, Georgia. She's the host of Medicine on Call radio show, which airs Saturday and Sundays. She's also the author of the book Big Medicine, which is a look at ways that physicians and patients can control the and transform the healthcare system. And she uses the radical notion that patients would like to know the prices of the care they're receiving before they walk out her door so that she provides that ahead of time. And she's also opted out of government payers, Medicare and Medicaid, and she'll explain why as we progress through the show. If you're a patient looking for a different way for specialists to practice, namely surgeons, or if you're a surgeon perhaps interested in how people can remove themselves from the system and practice in a little bit different way, more radical perhaps, this is a great episode for you. And as always, we'll be lifting up the rock the soft underbelly and the dark side of medicine to find out why things are the way they are and maybe ways we can fix it. Links mentioned within the show will be found at theparadox.com slash 041. And as always, if you're not subscribing to the show or you're new to the show, thank you for joining, but also be sure to subscribe. It's absolutely free and you can do it in your favorite podcast player. I'd ask that if you're new to the show, go back through the titles, find three or four that you find interesting, and make sure you catch up a little bit on what we've been talking about as we'll go over a number of topics in some detail during the show, but lots of them we breeze over, specifically direct primary care and some of the problems in the delivery system in general. Finally, I would still encourage you to reach out and contact me. You can find a contact link at theparadox.com. There you can send me ideas for new shows, people to interview, or just your general thoughts. I appreciate all the comments that you send and the kind, encouraging words. They mean a lot to me, and thank you so much for being engaged to the show and for directing other your friends and colleagues and family my way. So without further ado, Dr. Elena George, the otolaryngologist who sticks her neck out and actually discusses prices with her patients before they walk out her door. Enjoy. Welcome. Hey, folks. This is Dr. Larson. I'm here with Dr. Elena George. She's a board-certified otolaryngologist. Uh, she has an interest in healthcare and reform effort, and she's led a, been a powerful voice for the practicing physicians, an advocate for the patients and healthcare policy. Spreads into healthcare consumer-driven solutions. She's graduated from Princeton University, a degree in biology. She then got her master's degree in medical microbiology from Long Island University, her medical degree from Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York, completed residency in ear, nose, and throat at Manhattan, and her training included general surgery at Lenox Hill Hospital. She did pediatric ENT at New York Presbyterian, some head and neck oncology at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and she's published several scientific journals, presented her research at national meetings. She's a solo practitioner in private practice in Atlanta. It's also a small business owner, obviously. And so this gives her a unique perspective on the problems of the healthcare delivery, the true cost of healthcare, and viable solutions. She's a recipient of the Patient's Choice Award in 2008-2009, and has been a member of the Leading Physicians of the World and Who's Who Top Doctors Honors Edition. 
She's a member of the National Physicians Council on Healthcare Policy and has contributed to a wide variety of websites, including biggovernment.com, newmediajournal.us, and the National Center blog by Amy Rodenhauer's. She's been a guest on all sorts of different shows, far more famous than me, uh, Neil Cavuto, Financial Survival Network, Newsmax, and I guess I've, I could read through all these, but you've been all over the place. Uh, you've also written a book called Big, Big Medicine. So thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Uh, I guess the first question I have for you is why don't you talk, you're an ENT surgeon, so for you know, those who don't know, it's obviously your nose and throat. So I've not talked to many surgeons in the show, but why don't you go through what your your solo practice is? What do you do as far as your surgery? Are you just sort of the t- typical ears, um, like you know, tonsils and tubes, or do you do more specialized mm-hmm. surgeries? I'm a general ENT um, with a specialty in sinus. So I see uh, from 12 years old uh, and up, um, and my practice is a little unique because it's mostly office-based and that includes surgery. And we do sinus surgery, balloon dilations, diplasties, pretty much anything in the nose that you can do can be done in the office now, actually under local anesthesia. And I don't do much um, OR work unless it's a thyroid or something like a tonsillectomy where you'd need general anesthesia. And the reason that I changed my practice from the typical go to the OR and and do surgeries under general is because I wanted to be patient-centered. And as you know, the insurance model has become crazy and the out-of-pocket costs for patients have only gone higher and higher since I opened my practice in 2001. And when I found that technically you could actually get just as good results in a safer manner without using general anesthesia, I switched my practice. I think I was probably one of the first doctors to try uh, to do that. It's now pretty much standard of care for most ENTs to do their, their, their surgery in an outpatient office setting. Um, I also have an integrative approach to my practice. I really love patient care. I love what I do. And I'm a surgeon, but I'm also a physician. So being able to take the time to listen to my patients, to actually know them and not just their disease, has really made my practice fruitful. So I chose very early when I opened my own practice to not do volume. I don't see 50, 60 patients a day. I don't have a, uh, a physician assistant or a nurse practitioner. I see my own patients. I answer my after-hour phone calls, and I'm really happy. I've carved a niche that works for me, and if it can be a way to treat the problem and not just medicate it or not just operate on it, that's my mentality. So, yeah, that's very unusual for a surgeon, for those who, aren't, those who are not too familiar with the way surgeons work. I mean, generally speaking, you're... Your uh, income your, is getting to the OR and, and certainly doing as many procedures as you can. I mean, I don't mean to make that sound like people are just operating at everybody, but um, mm-hmm. you know, the more you, the more patients you see, obviously, the higher likelihood you can find people who need surgery, and that's what people get sent to you for the most part because they're they're sent there for problems that can't be solved through a primary care process. Um, mm-hmm. So, I'm a, as an anesthesiologist, I'm a little concerned that you avoid us. No, I'm just kidding. It's totally fine. <laughs> we have plenty. Of, we, we have plenty. We have plenty of work, so I'm not too concerned. I think that's great. Actually, there's been a, a huge move and shift uh, just out of the ORs in, from hospitals to surgery centers, and then we are definitely seeing more people moving out of the surgery centers into OR, um, out of into the offices. 
And actually, as mm-hmm. our, our practice is moving, we're moving into providing anesthesia for people out of the off into, into their offices as well, ones who need just some sedation that they can't do just with straight local. Uh, so right. we have added that as a component because the cost savings are significant. Um, and from a convenience factor, like you said, for patients, it's you know much easier than trying to get in, navigate through a hospital and the facility fees are you know outrageous. And so everyone wins in that sense. I agree. And also for those patients with underlying medical conditions where general anesthesia is more of a risk, like example, a sleep apnea patient, if mm-hmm. you have to do a septoplasty on them and they're awake and they're not under anesthesia, it's a much safer proposition. You don't have to extubate them. You don't have to worry about the post-operative, um, you know, things, complications that could present themselves. So it's become a real patient-oriented uh, standard of care now, especially when you're independent. I think that's the key for patients. They need to understand that there's a different level of care when it's an independent physician, no matter what the specialty is, versus those who have their practices um, either based out of the hospital or they've sold their practice to the hospital. I find that the middleman is really inhibitive or inhibits patient care on so many levels. It's not even funny. Yeah, I probably shouldn't be laughing then, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> we we talk a lot mm-hmm. of time, a lot in this this show about the, I don't know, I the middleman is it always because I think you know on some level there the people who facilitate and coordinate things at the middlemen are very valuable in society, but they're oftentimes that they're um, redundant or they're you know superfluous, and so they are they are an added extra layer mm-hmm. of cost that is unnecessary, right? Um, oh no question. And so, and so it sounds to me like you've you're obviously independent. You're not part of a large health system, and I feel like ENTs are like fifty percent or so. It was at the is that the sort of what it is right now that are employed versus independent. I think I wouldn't say employed, but their practices are locked with the hospital, so they're either getting partial payment for being on their clinical staff. Or they're seeing, or they've sold their practices outright, and they're just become the the out version of them, like a clinical partner, so to speak. And it's interesting here. I've really resisted, obviously, selling my practice or becoming a satellite center. But what happened in Georgia, in Atlanta, which is really interesting, is that we have is all over the country these uh, consortium of hospitals joining together and becoming mm-hmm. huge centers. And what they found is that they didn't have enough ear, nose, and throat doctors to take care of their patients, which is very interesting. I knew it was going to happen because yeah. once you lock that system and you have to see the doctor in that system, if you don't have any, what do you what do you send your patients? So it happened to me about a year and a half ago as I was approached by one of the large centers here in Georgia. And the caveat was, you don't have to be part of our staff. You know, you don't have, you're not selling your practice. You get to see patients and you treat them any way you want, but we have you as an, a, you know, a referral base. So I actually eat my cake, <laughs> have my cake yeah. and eat it too. And what really shocked me, I guess I knew this, but I really wasn't sure, was that when I joined the panel's under their umbrella, the reimbursement rate that I was getting for seeing patients tripled. I was shocked. So there's a disparity between what you get paid as an independent doctor versus what you get paid as a doctor under the umbrella of these systems. It's completely ridiculous because I'm doing the same thing, same way, but I'm getting paid a lot like I used to 
10 years ago. That's unacceptable, really, when you think about it. And you wonder if that's one of the main reasons why independent doctors have been driven out of private practice to these hospital systems. I'm sure that's it. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like um, there's definitely this pressure when you start having practices that are bought up or this hospital or the hospital system starts hiring their own specialists with surgeons um, because because they have their own automatic referral base with their primary care docs. And so mm-hmm. they try and keep everything within system. And then so then I think, you know, the, you, you see these groups that are not bought out and they get a little nervous because they, they see their referral base getting smaller. Um, but uh, but as you say, if there's a, some sort of shortage, which generally for most surgeons, it feels it feels to me like there aren't a whole lot of you guys. And so you kind of just have to hang in there. And it's it, I feel like it's going to usually work out for you. But you know, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like most of the time there's, when they join the system, it doesn't really change anything as far as volumes, <laughs> but, but now that, but now you at least have the independence to, to practice the way you want and you don't have the dictates from some larger health system telling you, you know, how often to see patients. And they generally, my impression is they flood these practices with, as you mentioned, mid-level, so like PAs and, and nurse practitioners, mm-hmm. because because their their um, revenue is generated much by referrals, and so even if they're not generating people who are, I guess, going for surgery, they're at least pushing as many referrals out of their primary care clinics to get that referral payment from the insurance companies. You know, and that's part of it, but with this particular setup, it's unusual that you're not tied to the ACO uh, care, um, algorithm. You can do what you mm-hmm. want. That was the key. Otherwise I never would have joined. I still treat my patients the way I deem fit based on my history, my, my cream, my training, every, everything. But now they don't have to have their patients not have someone to go to. And ultimately this should be a collegial atmosphere and it's become adversarial. I think independent doctors have been seen as the enemy because we are the choice and we end up being able to see patients faster, more cost effective. There's price transparency. It's about healthcare consumerism. And I don't believe hospitals offer that. It's all opaque. You have no idea what something costs until you've had the service. And that's unfair. I I can't think of any other specialty or profession where you have to do it and then you find out what's in it. Right. It's kind of strange, isn't it? Yeah. Well, this, I mean, we've talked about this plenty of times. It's, it is a very strange thing that you, that you walk into, you never know it, how much anything costs. Um, I do find it funny too, in the sense that you see these, these independent, say primary care docs who are running a one or $2 million revenue practice. And then they get mm-hmm. bought out by some large system. And then not surprisingly, they go to salary and they're like, well, I'm not gonna work that hard. And so now that their practice becomes a half million dollar practice, um, <laughs> It's, I mean, it's human nature, right? That, you know, if you get a guaranteed salary for generating whatever, you're not going to work as hard because there's less, you have less stake in it. And so that these, I think these hospitals really are, it's a struggle for them to try and maintain the market share that they want because I think they just sort of spin their wheels a lot of times and, or they, they're up against, I don't know, I guess human nature or whatever. And they don't, they don't get what they expect out of the, out of the deal. So I reached well, out to you I, initially. Oh, go ahead. Okay. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to cut you off, but I don't think they care. I think they want to bill and I think they want to get the services based on 
the ancillary care, right? So you have to oh, order yeah, a CT absolutely. through them. You have to get your labs through them. They're making their money that way. And that's my main complaint about the system. I don't believe it's based in patient care. And I know we're going to talk about other aspects, but I just want to give folks a couple examples. Recently, I've seen people who've been admitted through the ER, who was in a bike accident, sustained a concussion, got admitted, just got the MRI, and then discharged to follow up as an outpatient with ortho, ENT, and, and neurology. I've never heard of anything like that. Or another patient <laughs> bike with accident. an ear comp, a bike accident. So he shows up in my office a week later with a lacerated external ear. I've never heard of not being able to treat the patient in, on site, but it's happening more and more. So I don't think the hospitals now have become these catchment centers to get the initial revenue and then outsource them to the community without them being cared for. And there's another tragic example, a, a woman with a middle ear infection. And as you know, one of the complications is mastoiditis. It's yeah. infection in the bone. Well, she actually had facial paralysis and she shows up in my office with an ear infection. Ugh. That's what she showed up with. And I took one look at her. I'm like, oh my God, what happened? How'd you get out of the hospital? And the person who saw her as the consult, which they actually called, said she didn't want him to treat her. She, he just said, I can't help you when he left her. And again, she was discharged to the community. So this system is not working and it's broken. And I think doubling down, quite frankly, on making everybody buy into something that they can't afford and let, have <laughs> this be the standard of care is a joke. Do you also think that, um, you know, there's always the talks of the, the doctor shortage, certainly getting to specialists is really challenging, but I feel like a lot of times there's so much that care that can be, can be done at the, like he's mentioned, the primary points and all these consults are generated. All, there's all this sort of, um, uh, there's this impetus to try and push to have, get four visits out of, you know, one incident that suddenly mm -hmm. you're the reason you have these shortages and you're forced to hire all these other people to take care of, you know, the nurse practitioners, the PAs to try and burn through all these patients in the clinics is because they're all, there are a lot of things just aren't taken care of when they could be right away, very simply by pe by even primary care people or someone like an ER. Like you said, there's, you know, laceration, you can check, okay, they don't have a concussion, there's no head bleed, we don't really need a neurology mm -hmm. consult. For, I mean, it's a lot of these kind of crazy things. And I, I feel like a lot of it is just because it's just sort of just to run up the bill. And that's the way the system is designed whether it does it intentionally all the time or sort of unintentionally. I can't, I can't argue with that. I think there's some truth to that. But I think you can go back actually to the reimbursement model. Back in 2001 when they started capitation, I graduated in 98 and I finished my residency, went out into private practice, and that's the same time that capitation and HMOs started. And one of the things that, that I noticed is that, well, I'm sure you have too, that the reimbursement <laughs> for what you do every year has dropped every mm -hmm. year but the cost of doing business has gone up and that to me was the first reasoning behind having ancillary or mid-level um, providers in the system because you can see volume and then yeah. get the money but not because you didn't ha you couldn't see 50 people as an independent right as an individual you needed help right, right. but now we're in a position where I think the system is completely broken because we now have the mid-level providers, which used to be the help for the physician, let's face it. Um, mm -hmm. Now they're the front line of care and they're making the decisions and their decisions are based on different training than what a physician has. Yet we're told as a patient that it's the same and it's not. And that costs everybody more money as well because people are ordering more tests because they don't know 
like I'm an ear, nose, and throat doctor. I'm going to get a consult for a tonsil abscess that they did a CT scan on before they call the consult. It's a clinical diagnosis. <laughs> you don't need yeah. a CT for that. But this is how the cost of healthcare goes up because you have people in the system providing the frontline care who, no, no, no fault of their own, it's different training. They just don't know. And then you have an algorithm. So you're following these cookbook, you know, if it's wet, dry, yeah. if it's dry, mm-hmm. wet it, order, you know, that's ridiculous. <laughs> so there's no thought in this system. And we need to take our power back, honestly, as physicians so that we stop this. Yeah. And I think, I think uh, I've talked to plenty of friends who are especially uh, friends of urologists and a pediatrician and I feel like they say, yeah, pretty much Monday, they're just cleaning up all the mistakes made at urgent care centers by people who are using these sort of mm-hmm. cookbooks are trying to, you know, they're ordering all these antibiotics or these tests and stuff that just were unnecessary. And, um, and I wonder at some level if the problem is at least in part, if not mostly the fact that we have this disconnect between the payment, right? You have a patient who pays, has some skin in the game as far as co-pays and, um, but for the most part, they're not they're not really involved with the financial decisions of the test because I think, you know, if you go on to get your car fixed, they're going to ask you, do you want us to fix this, this, or this? Or, you know, mm-hmm. what, what kind of part do you want to use? Do you want us to get a new carburetor? Do you want an old one, like a refurbished one? You know, those discussions are just things we don't, I don't think many people have with their physicians. And so, you know, the question about the CT scan, I mean, you would say if the person's paying the full price for the CT, they're like, you know, do I need that? Or is there another way of doing, you know, I mean, those, I wonder if those discussions would, if those things would change, if there was a, if the payment was sort of more honest, or at least between the patient and the and the physician, versus having the the middleman in this case, a insurance company in between. I think it would, but it all comes down to price transparency. Let's just mm-hmm. start off. Not forget the conversation for a second, but let's if patients were able to go on a website and for the hospital and the local radiology centers and go and say plug in the the procedure or the, the test that needs to be done and see the prices that have cost you to do it in the hospital versus in the, the, your local radiology center, that would be the step one. You know, if people can figure out it's 250 in, in Atlanta for a CT of the sinus, if you pay out of pocket versus 2000 in a hospital, which one would you pick, right? It's the fact that you don't know. That's the key. And it's about patient-centered um, healthcare, consumerism. You mentioned, you said ex- a mouthful. You shop for everything else. You shop for cars. You shop for appliances. Well, you can now shop for doctors and know that what it's going to cost before you walk out of someone's office. As I said, my practice is a little unique. It's in my interest, frankly, to know how much I'm going to get from an insurance company for a procedure that's done. And it's in my interest to know what the patient's out of pocket is before I do it. And my policy has always been if before I do a telescopic exam, before I do a hearing test, I'm going to tell you what that allowed amount is and let you decide if you want it done. And if you do, you're paying for it, it's done. You know, at the time of service, everybody's happy. There's no bills coming after the fact. And I respect my patients. And I think a lot of independent doctors work that way because one, we don't have this huge billing, you know, army behind us to, to clean up the mess after it's done. And two, we want a good relationship with our patients. I don't want somebody saying, you didn't tell me, you did a procedure that I don't think I need it. I don't want that. So ultimately, I think if we had the time to actually sit and talk with our patients and not spend the average seven minutes with them, I think we'd have a much better relationship. I think there'd be less suits going on. 
I think the healthcare costs would drop. And that's one of the things that we actually can do now. We don't need the hospital's involvement. We don't need the government involvement. We just need to take the time to find out what the cost of something is. And if we make our own cost is, you know, we set our own prices, tell the patient what it is up front. Yeah, I know. Revolutionary, right? Tell people how much something costs before they have it. Uh, so you've mentioned a couple of things that are very unusual for most people, for some people listening to this thing. So you, you mentioned the whole fact that you're independent, which I think people are like, well, you know, just not part of a health system, but you clearly are, you're charging at the time of care and you're telling people ahead of time, which is not how it's normally mm-hmm. done, right? Normally you pay a copay or you walk in, you're using insurance. So do you have people who are using their a third-party payers, they're like a commercial insurance? Because I believe you're not using taking I, med- government yeah. insurers. Is that correct? No, I'm a hybrid practice. I don't take Medicaid okay. or Medicare, so that's not. But I do take some commercial plans. But all the insurance companies now allow you to call ahead. You can put, and mm-hmm. even online, you can put in the code that you're planning to do, and they'll tell you whether or not it's approved, need to be pre-certified, and how much the allowed amount is. So there's no reason that any doctor technically should be doing things with a patient and then not know what the cost is. You know, I, no one, yeah, unfortunately, right. well, from a surgeon standpoint, it's very difficult to take no insurance, unfortunately, although I'm working sure, my yeah. weight down <laughs> as close <laughs> as I can get there. But it is, it's a business, right? So the mm-hmm. patient also needs to know that they have a responsibility to know what their insurance is. And I think there's been a disconnect. I have an insurance card. It covers everything. I'm just going to sit back and let it work. It doesn't work that way. And I think because we respect our patients and we respect our relationship with our patients, we don't want gray area. We don't want black holes of information. Whatever I do, first of all, it's going to be necessary. And second of all, if you have a responsibility, you need to know what that is so that there's no no drama, <laughs> if you want to put it that way. That's that's part of patient care. I think patients are stick they have sticker shock beyond belief when they get these bills back and they have no idea. I didn't know. That's not fair to them either. So if we can change the paradigm, and I think I'm hoping that Congress will eventually catch up with the real world and actually make everybody list their prices and be transparent. I think the light will shine on this, and the hospitals will be forced to ask or answer the question, why does it cost 2500 for a CT scan? What is your facility fee and why do you charge it? They don't, nobody knows this stuff, so they never ask the question. But knowledge right. is power. Probably the main reason there is no answer for it, right? Except we can charge that much. <laughs> why the can. CT scan? When you're, <laughs> yeah, when you're in the ER, your CT scan's twice as expensive as it is when you walk in the hospital as an inpatient, and it's three times more than if you're an outpatient coming in for, right? I mean, doesn't make much sense because yeah. it's the same. Everyone else is the same as far as the people who are taking care of you. And um, so you are, and I've been quoted as told, saying that you were, quote, opted out of Medicare before it was cool. So why don't you go through your reason for, <laughs> for, for opting out of Medicare and Medicaid, especially when we know people are talking about maybe having Medicare available to everyone mm. to take care of uh, care. Mm-hmm. So why did you as a practitioner decide to, decide not to take care of those people? Because it was inhibiting me from taking care of my patients. And it was inhibiting <laughs> me from being a Hippocratic oath practicing physician. That was the number one and two reasons. If the amount of choice that we had to prescribe appropriate medications, to get appropriate testing, to do appropriate procedures were 
it was impossible to take care of these patients. They were getting a lower standard of care compared to my commercial patients. And if you add in all of the red tape and the, uh, the regulations which you were guilty before proven innocent, then that was enough for me. So you can underbill a patient in Medicare. Underbill, right? You charge less mm-hmm. than you're allowed to charge. That's fraud. If you do that three <laughs> yeah, times, right. you're going to jail. I mean, who would take that? Come on now. I'd rather make a deal with the patient, have a flat rate with them, see them without all of the all of the government regulation. It was in the patients didn't do that versus me looking over my shoulder 24 seven. I couldn't do it. All they have to do is come and audit you and they'll shut you down. Even if you're innocent, you don't have a practice. Who would who would be in the system like that? It's ridiculous. And then as a specialist, Medicare made a rule that there were no more consultation fee. So you were getting paid the same way as you would if you were a primary care doctor. Meanwhile, you're, you're a specialist, so people consult for second opinions. It is not the same standard or level or time, and they were gonna, you know, you're gonna take like a 30, 40% hit. It's already pennies on the dollar, then you're actually paying people to see you. I wouldn't be able to stay open. So those business decisions and ethical and moral decisions were I had no choice. I still see Medicaid and Medicare patients as self-pay patients, and we have a a sliding scale. So now I'm able to see them in a cost-effective way. They're happy. I'm happy. I'm not looking over my shoulder, and Mm -hmm. I'm still providing care. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like, um, you know, with the whole discussion on Medicare for all, uh, I know... And I'm not an expert on Medicare insurance, but I mean, I know most Medicare patients have supplemental insurance because Medicare doesn't pay for everything. So it's very strange to me that everyone thinks that having a Medicare for all system would suddenly, you know, ma- magically pay for everything because I'm pretty sure like medications aren't covered. Hospital stays aren't covered on some to some level. And you're still on the hook for 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 money. I mean, for premiums for the insurance, but also for payment if you have surgery or something like that. I mean, I know it's mostly covered. No, you're absolutely right. And with the Affordable Care Act rules that went into play, if you there were four, I think four different designations of admission, ambulatory, observation, outpatient, and inpatient. And if you were admitted as an observation or ambulatory patient, anything that went on and goes on in that hospital in terms of medication and treatment, that's on you. You have to pay that unless you're admitted as an inpatient. So most people are being designated, unless you're really half dead, unfortunately, as observation. Anything right, to yeah. make the patient pay more, that's what they yeah. were doing. Can you imagine everybody being in that system? It's a, it's, it's a Medicare on steroids, and you have yeah. nowhere else to go. The one thing that I preach and I, that I think is really important is choice. Not everything works for everybody. The Affordable Care Act may work for some folks. Um, direct primary care may work for others. Um, Christian cost sharing may work for other folks. Everybody should have their own choice. But if you have Medicare for all, that's gone. They even finally admitted there will be no more p- private insurance in this system. Everybody's going to get the same substandard care and pay for the privilege. Because I can trust, I trust and believe everybody's in taxes have to go up to pay for a system like this. Yeah. Well, I mean... Some people like Pepsi and some like Coke, right? I mean, I think that part of our our entire culture is built upon the fact that we have the choice, the freedom to associate and to to choose to to live the way we want and exactly. to make those 
make those consumer decisions and because they're all preferences that we have and things that match with, with our values and some that don't. And so the, the more you can maximize those choices available in the marketplace, the more likely you're going to have people who are satisfied with the way they're getting their care and the way they're able to provide the care for people um, the way they think is best. Um, so you wrote the book, Big Medicine, and what's I'm trying to remember what the subtitle is. It's uh, The Cost of Corporate Control and How Doctors and Patients Working Together Can Rebuild a Better System. I have not had a chance to, to read the book, but... Can you give a little synopsis about how you think, because you obviously, this is, I think came out in 2015, so I imagine this is sort of after the Affordable Care Act had been out for a while, and so we kind of had kind of seen mm-hmm. it. So um, what, would the, what are the big takeaways from the book as far as, um, as far as how you build a better system? Aside from, I guess we're just now talking about how there's more choices, but what would you say? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it, the, the underpinning of a better system is to have the doctor and the patient as the forefront, as the foundation. I think everybody else has tried to define us and their corporate interests, their government interests, there's crony capitalism. Everything has used the doctor and the patient as the fulcrum to make money. If you, if you look at 16 to one administrator to doctor ratio in an average hospital, that should tell you a lot. That you have this middleman layer of bureaucracy that's denying care. Look at the insurance companies. Patients pay a premium. Each year, their out-of-pocket has gone up. Mm-hmm. And they're in a position now, and I see it every day, where they deny themselves services because they can't afford the deductible or the coinsurance. What is the point of having a health insurance plan if you're paying 90% of it? You're paying the premium and the out-of-pocket. What are they putting in? And when you do have something catastrophic, I can tell you, I've seen it. It's not medically necessary. It's not, not yeah. covered. They get you on the back end. So if patients understand that there is a two-tier system, the insurance-based system and the, and the free market or the health consumer-driven system, and they're not the same, it's actually cheaper to access our healthcare system if you pay for it out of pocket than it is to use your insurance plan. Nobody really understands that, but that's exactly what's going on. I personally have joined a health a Christian sharing ministry, because mm-hmm. I wanted to take control of my healthcare dollar. I did not want the insurance company to tell me where I needed, what I needed to do, and quite frankly, what kind of treatment that I was allowed to have. I believe in integrative functional medicine, and I want to go to to think that way. And now my Christian sharing ministry will cover that. They won't deny me based on that. So it's a personal choice, and it's much cheaper. I'm paying two fifty a month. And I'm covered up to a million dollars per incident per year. And my total out of pocket is $1,000 a year. To me, that works. And for other patients, they may like general insurance, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But we all need to exist because if we have a free market, uh, a transparent system, it allows the patient to become a consumer. And when they go back to that hospital and say, I know I can get this gallbladder surgery for $1,500, are you going to meet the price? It's amazing how it works because the hospital will drop their price because they want the business. Yeah. Their surgery center of Oklahoma, for example, mm-hmm. who has been living alongside their hospital system and their hospital system's rate dropped, their payment, their, their fee schedule based on what surgery center of Oklahoma did. So I know it works and we all have to be there so patients can literally know what a price is and then shop around, find what works best for them. And more importantly, Put pressure on a system that is so huge that it makes it up and 
And so what? You don't like to pay it? Tough. That's where they are now. They need to have the ability to say, well, if I don't get this patient, I'm going to lose business and I'm going to get a bad, I better play ball. That's the only leverage the patient really has. And it's a huge amount of leverage, but they just don't know it. So the book talks about that. Do you, do you feel like, uh, I mean, when looking at the numbers, it seems like the amount of people who are in these, these, um, these uh, cost-sharing ministries or the like mm-hmm. the Liberty Health Share, these health-sharing ministries, mm-hmm. it has exploded as far as the amount of, I think it's quintupled in the last six years or so. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's still a very small portion of people who are receiving care through this, I think out of 300 and, what is it, 360 million people in the country, I think a million people. But it, I mean, that's pretty significant growth from 200,000 just a couple of years ago. Are you seeing more patients Absolutely. who are part of this now too? And I mean, is, is it is it easy working with these companies? Do you, do you find it's a... It's pretty effective. Actually, it is. I think they select out a patient base one. And I should preface this. You don't have to be healthy. You can have underlying medical problems like diabetes or high blood pressure or even cancer. But what happens is you do select out a majority of the patients who think about it. They put some thought into, do I really need to use it or you know, I'm sharing this with other people. If I don't need it, I'm not really going to use it. That's one set of the pop. And the other set of it, they want to stay healthy. So they're about prevention. They don't want to get sick. So there's a lot less um, accessing the system with catastrophic illnesses. But if you do get one, it will be covered. And I've seen that. I've had a, um, an audiologist who had back surgery. I've had uh, employees who've been admitted to the ICU and had to take ambulances in. And it's all covered. And I uh, also have noticed, and one of the reasons I joined them is that they had an integrative side. So they allowed integrative treatment to be included in what they would be covered. And you can leave the country and do medicalism. They really, it was, it was member-based. So as a member decided, hey, let's all vote on whether we want to cover this, it was us doing it as opposed to the insurance companies making it up and restricting. So the mindset of the health sharing ministries is about helping the members, inclusion, as opposed to cutting costs. It's not quite the same mentality as a commercial insurance, and I really like that about it. Yeah, I feel like if you see the the rewards programs within the sort of the traditional commercial pairs, they'll have prices and they'll have maybe rewards for like, you know, get a $50 gift card if you check out prices and maybe try and find go to a lower cost center for your MRI, for instance. But I think it's mm-hmm. probably different if you have a system where you are um, – and my understanding is generally it's you actually kind of see sometimes who you're sending the bill to or who you're paying for someone who's got the gallbladder out or whatever it might be. So it is a, it personalizes and it makes it a, it makes it, I mean, it sort of a charitable sort of process where you are exactly. helping your fellow community member and it, it makes it, it adds a face, I guess, to what would otherwise be just a large pool of money you're sending into like insurance company, which is essentially does exactly the same thing. Right. I mean, but, it just well, make it, it like you said, it's a little different though. Well, I mean, okay, sure, the, but the, I mean, the insurance company pays. For- they're not trying to make a profit. Well, the mindset of the insurance company is to make money. It's not altruistic, right? So if the commission sharing ministries are not based on profit. They're they're nonprofit for real. And when mm-hmm. the insurance company makes that premium or takes it, and they deny it or delay it, they make money every day. They don't pay that claim. And I've heard numbers as much as eighty thousand dollars a day per claim based on delay of that payment. It's mm-hmm. a different mindset than yeah. both the and the patient side, which I find to be unethical, frankly. Yeah. Um, another thing that people 
just want to explain, people are going to ask, well, how come it's so cheap to join a health sharing ministry? It's because they use the cash pay side of the healthcare system. They're using the, the, the discount that is naturally built into paying out of pocket versus using your insurance. Remember, you, you have that layer of middleman of administrative fees that take a lot of money. When you cut it out and say, I'm going to cut me a deal if I pay you right away, what are you going to give me as a discount? Here in Georgia, you can get a 70% discount from insurance, um, from surgeries you do in outpatient surgery center if you pay at the time of service. That's a big difference. And that's what the health sharing ministries are accessing. So I wanted people to understand there's a difference in pay schedule and fee schedule based on whether your insurance is involved or if it's not. Yeah. I mean, and 70%, that's, I mean, that's tremendous. I think it's real important because I have people approach me on Twitter and they're like, why don't you do this or that? I'm like, a lot of times the rules set forth by Medicare, for instance, you can't Mm -hmm. offer different pricing for other, because Medicare, I mean, it not, I guess not uh, surprisingly said, well, you can't just offer different prices to different people because we we are, you know, one of your, we're going to send money to you for procedures. You can't just be undercutting us or paying, having other people pay less because you know, they can't pay as much. You have to have a set, fee schedule and so and by the way we're the one setting it <laughs> uh and so you, <laughs> exactly. they allow they do allow cash discount i think at time of payment but if it's not at that time you're not allowed any sort of other discounts like the person suddenly you know hard up something happens you can't say well you, i'll just mm-hmm. waive the fee i'll do it for free you're not allowed to do that right if, as long as you're part of the medicare which is why i assume one of the reasons you opted out just because it 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 certainly puts you at risk for it's too rigid yeah it's rigid exactly and, it's and, way and too it's, rigid it's, it's not patient-centered Absolutely. And it's really difficult too if to just to differentiate yourself from other providers, right? I mean, I don't think anyone would argue that an ENT surgeon has far more experience than a nurse practitioner. And just for seeing someone who's an ear, nose, and throat surgeon about some issue, you would expect to get paid more than a nurse practitioner. But I mean, in today's world, it's kind of the same, right? I mean, you get the the value of this mm-hmm. visit is is more based on what questions were asked, you know, to get that social history, to get the family history, did you check six components of the physical exam and that's how you determine yeah. um, the payment. And it's, it's, uh, it's totally independent from the person who's taking care of you, which is kind of crazy. And there are probably some ENTs who are better than others. And so you'd think that they could command a higher pay or some others, you know, be less. And, and it's, you're not allowed to have any sort of variation within a system that's controlled by the, the Medicare system, the government, because it's just, it's too complicated for them to ever try and figure that out. And so they just say, everyone just, this is what you get. It's the lowest common denominator, right? So it's a race to the bottom, essentially. And this is where if people are consumers and they say, you know, you went to this, the best school, the best medical school, you have a great um, outcome for your surgeries. I don't want, I want to pay you more because I want more value. They should be allowed to do that. And the doctor, by definition, if they want to set their fee scale based on what their experience and their outcomes are, they should be allowed to do it. The Affordable Care Act, actually, if you really read this thing, they're in the business of, they will be setting the price of how much you get paid as a surgeon, how long, or yeah, pretty much any doctor, but they talked about surgery specifically. Mm -hmm. How long should it take for your patient to be discharged, what the outcome should be. So if you don't fall within the guidelines of any of those tenants, those regulations and rules, you're not getting paid. This is a human being we're talking about. Nothing works the way it does in a textbook. Right. It's awesome when it does. <laughs> but for them to say, well, it's written, so this is how we write it, and this 
this is the parameters you need to fit between. No physician, no professional, no patient should want a system like that. It's not logical or reasonable. But it's yeah. about control. It's never been about healthcare. It's about control. Control of one-sixth of the economy, control of doctors' and patients' choices, and control of wealth. And quite frankly, in my opinion, it's a transfer of wealth from the patient and the doctor to the government. And that's what Medicare for all and single payer ultimately will mean. Yeah. It always surprises me that that patients, for, for one thing, no one is, you would be shocked if you walked down the street and saw someone who looked exactly like you. Um, exactly. But, but no one's ever surprised, but then patients are mystified that their insides are not exactly the same as everyone else. And that they, but if, right, and then everyone actually responds differently to medications or treatments. And so I mean, that's part of the experience in the practice of medicine, right? Everyone thinks, oh, you just follow this sort of, well, you kind of have a general guideline of how you practice and what you do. But I mean, you have to be ready for variations and that's sort of the experience factor. And that's the uh, the training that comes in. And it, it only surprises exactly. people who have failed to even like think for a second that people were not like a bunch of mass produced 747s, right? I don't have all the parts exactly mm-hmm. in the same place that, you know, made the same plant or whatever. So I don't know. I, I, when it comes to, to the healthcare system right now, we were talking off the air beforehand, but I tend to feel that the, the best way of proving pe- to people that there are ways of, of delivering care the way you want and the way patients want is to do it in despite all the different roadblocks and obstacles set in fr- face in front of us by the uh, the insurance company or the current system as it is. And so yours is one example. Like you mentioned, Surgery Center of Oklahoma. I've talked to some physicians who are setting up you know, ERs that are independent and, you know, at 10% mm-hmm. of the cost because they can just, they just specialize in one thing and they're really good at it. Um, mm-hmm. What, is, in your opinion, is that the best way for people to go about it? I mean, for one, is it, if you're a doc to look at to to somehow get into that sort of work way around the system, and if you're a patient to find those people who are outside the system, is that the most effective way, or do you think, or do you really look to the state capitals and to the national capitals to to find solutions? I'm all about the individual, frankly, mm-hmm. and the next level up would be the state societies, and. Going to your insurance commissioner, I mean, I'm unfortunately in a position now where I'm working with the insurance commissioner about issues happening with one of the major payers in here in Georgia, where it's a joke. They're not, they had some sort of computer glitch. It messed up the address, so none of the payments came through. <laughs> and they knew it, but they never changed it. And so, you know, three months of I'm not getting paid, that made me a little bit feel some kind of way. Is that a so problem? Now I'm, I'm going to take it up to, yeah, <laughs> if it's your bigger payer, yeah, it yeah. is. Um, so I'm going to the state capitol to try to make the doctor's voices heard because it's such a, a subtle problem that unless you, I didn't know it until it, it showed up on my bottom line. Then I started to investigate and then to find out that they knew that there was a computer error, but they never fixed it and never said anything. That's a problem in my opinion. So you have to be the be the solution, whatever that means to you, whatever makes you, I get up in the morning, I love what I do. I didn't feel that way 10 years ago when I was working for a huge group and I was just a cog in a wheel. And so I made a conscious decision to dismiss in a manner in which I felt good about myself, my life, and my profession. If you're not happy with what you're doing, figure out why and change it. 
And don't let anybody tell you that you can't because I'm a solo practitioner for 18 years. I'm still open and I'm doing it the way I want to. And I'm getting patients coming to me specifically because I'm not part of a huge group because I'm not seeing 30 people a day because they want my time and because my reputation about that and outcomes precede me. So there's so many ways to do this. Just find what works best for you. Yeah. You know what? That kind of goes for about any job you do. Whatever it might be, it's yeah. not not specifically for medicine. Whatever you do, if it, you don't like what's going on, think about it and think about ways you can fix your life or fix the job or whatever it is because there's probably a solution somewhere for you, I imagine. Well, Dr. George, we're running out of time, so I really appreciate the discussion. Where can I will um, link to the show notes at theparadox.com, all the things we talked about mm-hmm. today in your website and your book, the big medicine book, where do people find you and where can they file, find more of the stuff you're doing? Well, I actually have a radio show called Medicine on Call, Living in the Solutions, and they can get that on iTunes or Spotify. Um, you can follow my Medicine on Call on Facebook. Uh, you can also go to my website, com, where I write a blog and the shows get uploaded there as well. And Ultimately, I'm about information. I think the more that we get out there, doctors are very insular. We just do our job. We put our heads down and we keep it going. But we need to start talking and letting people know exactly what it means to be a physician, how much we love what we do and how much we're put upon in the system. I know the patients will come along with us if they know. That's what my mission is, is to educate patients and my fellow colleagues. Are you out on Twitter as well? medicine on at medicine on call okay well for a girl from new york who ended up in atlanta you've definitely (laughs) made an upgrade in weather except probably during july and august you may have second thoughts then but um (laughs) a little bit (laughs) and and it's probably better for nt because like i'm telling you i'm in michigan right now there is no pollen here at all unless you're allergic to snow you're actually doing just fine um (laughs) So probably the ENTs, although they have plenty of colds and other things that are, <laughs> that keep busy with tonsils and stuff. So I appreciate <laughs> that you spend the afternoon with me and have a great day. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.